just over in the glory land. We sang that song, and what a beautiful sentiment's contained within it. The opportunity to look forward to that golden glory land where we'll be able to sing and to sing and to sing, and also to serve in other ways in the capacities of what heaven will make available for you and for me. Certainly it's good to be able to come again together as we are tonight. I know that with the time change as it has been, now it's awfully dark outside, but it's certainly so good to see the choice that's been made by the group of people before whom I stand tonight, that each of us who've gathered have made a willful and purposeful decision that there's no other place that I intend to be than in the services of the church. And so tonight, I hope that we each can be motivated and moved and maybe reconsider again the biblical person named Mara. Now, you both have every right to ask, I wonder who that is. I remember Mary. Perhaps you remember several people by that name, but who is Mara? Well, tonight, as we study this person, the book of Ruth will be the primary focal point of our study, so please be turning to that Old Testament book, and we will then, in just a moment, give some attention to that, to that book, especially chapter 1. This opening slide is an introductory one. Perhaps at the middle of that lesson, it's just an observation. The book of Ruth is such a charming little book, isn't it? Four chapters, and yet in the midst of that placement of the Old Testament, there are certainly some very different things both before it and after it. In just a moment, as we give some thought to that, remember the book of Judges is just before it, and the book of 1 Samuel is just after it. Right nestled in between is this little book of Ruth, and what, what an oasis on the desert of difficulty and affliction and challenge, and quite frankly, also in the midst of sin. And yet, we'll find such refreshing characters we come to that book in just a minute. But as you'll notice at the bottom of that slide, we are going to give attention to a person named Mara that's actually in this book. Let's go to the next slide. And let's make a few general comments about the book to begin our lesson. And following that, we'll look in more detail and in more intensity at some of the things that are to be found in it. As far as those general comments, you can notice on that slide that in many ways the book of Ruth is a bit of a refreshment. I mentioned a moment ago, before it's the book of Judges. And we have certainly on Sunday morning have learned much about that book. We see periods of service followed by periods of unfaithfulness. And the people of Israel would fall into idolatry. And they'd fall into service to various and sundry peoples. And God, of course, would raise up a deliverer when they found themselves in oppression and when they found themselves in such dire circumstances. Well, you'll notice then in the book of Judges, there's a lot of references to ungodliness a lot of references to bad choices, and a lot of references to God's judgment. But in the book of 1 Samuel, we notice there we also encounter a lot of poor choices. Eli's sons, you know, they weren't very good servants to God. They, in fact, molested women, and they, in fact, did other things that were wholly inappropriate for those that would be priests, much less the sons of the high priest. And yet, in addition to all of that, we find in that book many other things that bother us. And right in the middle of all of this is the little book of Ruth. You'll notice at the top of that slide, continuing on at some of the statements in it, let me invite your attention to verse 1. 
Ruth 1, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was famine in the land. Already you and I might note something interesting, namely the actual time period for the book of Ruth is in the period of the judges. Judges were ruling the land at this time. It just so happens to be that it appeared to be a time of prosperity and a time of service to God. It was not during one of those periods when they had turned their back upon God. That alone is certainly interesting. But did you notice it says there was famine in the land? In other words, there was this localized pocket in which they were experiencing famine, it says, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Certainly, in light of the period of the judges, you notice that some of the things then that we should expect in that book may have been true generally in the time of Ruth, but certainly for what we read about, we have an air of relief an air that was at least a little bit distinct. For that reason, at the bottom of the slide, I've simply invited your attention. We find Ruth is likely the world's best-known love story. It probably would be safe to say that. Certainly the best-known biblical one, but also one of the best-known around the globe. The love story that is the book of Ruth. You may notice then as we devote the next few moments to it, we don't see any warfare. We don't see any givenness to overwhelming idolatry. We don't see any attention, anything like that. We find a love story, the love story of Boaz and Ruth. As you and I close that slide, why don't we then just sketch at least an overview of some of the chapters so it will prepare us to discuss a bit more carefully about Mara. First of all, chapter 1. Now, rather than reading it, I would just like to overview it, to discuss, perhaps and briefly, some of the features and the characteristics of it. And I hope that as we give consideration to it, that it will truly be a matter of encouragement to us. We encounter a man named Elimelech. Now, he was an Israelite. And you might already take note in verse 1 where he lived. He lived in Bethlehem. It was the same city a thousand years in the future that was going to be where Jesus was born. The very same city. That makes a marvelous lesson on the providence of God, by the way. To appreciate the backdrop of the book of Ruth, that very same place that ultimately David would be born. And that same place, the Christ child, where Joseph and Mary, remember, had gone to because, remember, Joseph was of the lineage of David and Bethlehem was the city of David. The book of Ruth is the reason why that's so. It gives us the understanding of how it came to be. But aside from that, we notice that Elimelech was married to a woman named Naomi. Furthermore, they were blessed with two sons, two children. Isn't it interesting that you and I notice immediately their names? The older one, it would seem, was named Malan. The younger one was named Kalian. So here we have an interesting picture of this ancient Israelite family. A man named Elimelech, his wife Naomi, their two sons, Malan and Kalian. But tragically, there was famine in the land. This 
intensity, this very sore circumstance, and as a result of it, Elimelech made a decision for the well-being of his family to take them to Moab, to take them across the Jordan River and to dwell in this land east, if you please, of the Dead Sea. In verses 1 and 2, you begin to appreciate then how that, that particular movement took place. But as the chapter is quick to tell us, things took a turn for the worse after they arrived in Moab. For after all, we learned that the purpose for this was to safeguard the family's well-being so that there would be food to eat. And yet when they got there, after a period of time, Elimelech died. That left the woman and the two boys. Now we aren't told how old they were, but sadly enough, we begin to notice a few more things. Let's highlight one more truth beforehand. The boys grew up and they had arrived at the age of selecting a wife. And they each chose Moabite women. Malin selected a woman named Ruth to be his wife. Kylian selected a woman named Orpah. These two Moabite women then became the wives, if you please, of these sons of Elimelech. But now we quickly note this. Within a period of a few years, the two boys died as well. So Naomi had come into this land with her husband and her two boys. Her husband died, the boys married, and now the boys died. All that's left is Naomi and the two daughters-in-law. One named Ruth, the other named, Naomi, the other named Orpah. As you can perhaps see rather quickly on that slide, the grand total of the time that they had spent there was ten years, according to the text. And with that said, Naomi makes a choice. I no longer have my husband and I no longer have my sons. I find it difficult to fend for myself in this distant and foreign place. I'm going to go back to Bethlehem. I'm going to go back to Palestine. She makes that determination. What would happen to the daughters-in-law? You may notice they make the initial choice to return with her, to go back to Bethlehem. As the journey begins, Naomi makes an insistence, you need to stay here. I'm too old to remarry, and even if I did, you couldn't wait around for those boys of mine to grow up and for me to give them to you. Orpah makes the choice to stay behind. She chooses to go back to her father's house there in the land of Moab. But Ruth makes a different choice. Ruth determines to go back with her mother-in-law. She determines to, in fact, leave her homeland behind, to leave her family, her place of residence, and the only place she'd ever known, to leave all of that behind and to go with Naomi back to Bethlehem. And her words are some of the most famous, I suppose, in all the Old Testament. They read like this in verses 16 and 17. These words again were spoken by Ruth to Naomi. And she said, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whether thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. And where thou diest, will I die. And there will I be buried. And may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. 
Isn't that some of the most endearing words to be found anywhere in the Old Testament? To appreciate that degree of loyalty, that degree of commitment. Did you notice what she said? Your God is going to become mine. Your people shall be mine. And where you die is where I'll die. If aught but death part thee and me. That's why from time to time, that's a part of marriage ceremonies. Now, obviously there, it's a man to his wife, to, to his bride, if you please, but the level of commitment, the level of determination, the level of loyalty. And with that, the curtain closes on chapter number 1. But did you notice in part that as it comes to its close, we have Ruth and her mother-in-law Naomi arriving back in Bethlehem. Now let's come to chapter number 2. Upon arriving back in this place, obviously the ladies need to have provision for themselves. And of course God had made provision for them in the following way. It was the time of harvest. And so it was that as the harvest was taking place, you can see on the slide, Ruth gleaned in the field of Boaz. That is to say, as the reapers would proceed through the field, anything that was dropped, remember, they were not to clear the corners of the field. God had made provision, that's for the poor and it's for the widows. Therefore, God had built in the earliest welfare system the world had ever known. Here was a means whereby those individuals could prepare and take care of themselves. You notice Ruth was gleaning in the fields of Boaz. You'll notice as we close that slide, Boaz, it seems, had an eye for her fairly early on. In fact, he asked his reapers, who is this woman? They quickly and rather directly pointed out, she came back with Naomi and she is taking care of her mother-in-law. Boaz was impressed by her kindness, impressed by her conviction, impressed by the kind of individual that she was. There's a lesson in that for each of us. When we want to be the most impressive, it doesn't come from the outside. It develops from the inside. The kind of heart that we have and how we manifest what that heart contains in the way that we behave. That's what Ruth was doing. She may have been a Moabite by descent, but she illustrated the kind of character that was impressive to any Jew. We're going to learn before the book's over just how marvelous that's going to become. For right now, let's close that slide. Boaz, having an interest in her, rather quickly told his reapers, you leave some stuff for her to get. You, in fact, purposefully leave behind some things you otherwise could glean so that Ruth can get it. And so Ruth bountifully gleaned in his fields. And as you and I close that slide, we note this. You can imagine the excitement as Ruth came back at the end of the day of gleaning, and she had all kinds of grain that she had gleaned. Naomi recognized that was a bit unusual for a woman to be able to acquire that much just in the process of gleaning. And so Naomi asked, Whose field did you glean in today? Ruth was quick to say it was in the field of a man named Boaz. And Naomi immediately knew who he was. Ruth, maybe I should inform you of something. He's a near kinsman. In other words, we're related to him. 
And not only that, the favor He has bestowed upon you leads us directly into chapter 3. For in that chapter, we notice that some clear instructions were given to Ruth by Naomi. And Naomi basically told Ruth this, here's what I want you to do. Tonight, as Boaz is finishing up the winnowing, as he's finishing up the particulars related to the barley harvest, he's going to be celebrating. You go down to the threshing floor, Ruth, and after he has fallen asleep, you uncover his feet and you lay there at his feet. And when he wakes up, you tell him this. You, in fact, urge him to cast his mantle over you. In other words, you invite him to play the part of a near kinsman. In that day and time, that's the way it was done. Remember, when a particular person died without children, the near kinsman had right to those matters. Ruth, you let him know that you're available. You let him know you're interested in him. And isn't it interesting how that chapter plays out? She did exactly what Naomi instructed. In fact, at the midnight hour when Boaz woke up, he found this woman at his feet and he asked who it is. And she very submissively said, I'm Ruth, who's been gleaning in your field. Would you please cast your mantle as a near kinsman over me? Boaz had some very sweet words for her. He said, I may well be a near kinsman, but there is one nearer than me. And of course, by the law of God, he would have first right to all that was Elimelech's. Ruth, do not let this fret you. You rest here tonight. Tomorrow morning, I will go to the city gate. I will have discussion with the elders of this place, and when the nearer kinsman is there, I will urge him to take his role as the near kinsman and care for you and Naomi. In the morning time, she hastily left and went back to Naomi. And again, she had a lot of grain that he had given her. Boaz was dutiful to go to the city gate. That brings us to chapter 4. In that fourth chapter, as you can see, he did approach in a very masterful way, in a very worthy way, the elders of the land. And he matter-of-factly stated the matter concerning both Ruth and Naomi and the nearer kinsman came by. And a conversation developed between that nearer kinsman and Boaz, and Boaz asserted, you need to carry out the duty of the near kinsman. And at first the man was excited. He looked forward to acquiring the land that would have been Elimelech's and to having access to what perhaps monetarily would have been related to it. But Boaz was quick to mention the man who plays the near kinsman not only gets the land, but he gets Ruth as well. At this point, that man certainly wasn't as excited as he had been before. I'm already married. I already have obligations. I cannot redeem it. And therefore, he publicly and in the presence of those elders forfeited his right, and that gave access to Boaz. And so he quickly, as you can see on the slide, he approached Ruth, he approached that family, and he made observation of his wish to play the role of the near kinsman, to redeem all that that was and to thus be able to marry Ruth. You'll notice as you and I close that slide, 
What a tremendous matter it was. Could I direct your attention to chapter number 4? Specifically, verse number 10. Now, moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Malan, have I purchased to be my wife, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren, and from the gate of his place. Ye are witnesses this day." And all the people that were in the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman that is come into thine house like Rachel and like Leah, which too did build the house of Israel, and do thou worthily in Ephrata, and be famous in Bethlehem. And let thy house be like the house of Phares, whom Tamar bare to Judah, of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth... And she was his wife, and when he went in unto her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. And the women said unto Naomi, Blessed be the Lord which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel. And he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life, and a nourisher of thine old age. For thy daughter-in-law, which loveth thee, which is better to thee than seven sons, hath borne him." And Naomi took the child and laid it in her bosom and became nurse unto it. And the women, her neighbors, gave it a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. At that point, we've at least surveyed the four chapters of the book. Why don't we thus return to the title of the lesson? Remember, we were going to discuss about Mara. Would you revisit chapter 1, verse 20 with me? Ruth 1, verse 20. Naomi speaking said, And she said unto them, Call me not Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. May I suggest it would seem a number of lessons could be very meaningful, very beneficial, and very compelling for you and me as we think about this name that Naomi wanted to be called. Don't call me Naomi, she said. Call me Mara. Well, let's develop it like this. Naomi is the one who said that. In what condition did she say it? Well, you've already noted it. That was at the end of chapter 1. She, with her husband and family, had gone off to Moab... Her husband Elimelech had died. Her two boys, Malin and Kylian, had died. She was left with no menfolk. And in that day, of course, it was very important. She had thus gone back to Bethlehem, and only Ruth was with her. It was in that context that the following statement is made. She said unto them, the people to whom she's speaking are the citizens of Bethlehem, the people who greeted her when she came back. She said, don't call me Naomi. I went out full with a husband and two sons, and I've come back empty. And by that again, she was referring to, to the children, her boys and her husband. Now she had Ruth with her, but she said, call me Mara. That word Mara, as you can see on the slide, in the original Hebrew language, that word means bitter. You call me bitter. Why? Because God has dealt bitterly with me. I've lost my husband. I've lost my two sons. Call me Mara. I've invited your attention 
to notice that clearly she was referring to these calamities that had impacted her family, these deaths of her sons and her husband. But you and I know as you come near the bottom of that slide, I think all of us, though, would readily agree to this. Although she perhaps felt the word Mara was an appropriate designation in chapter 1, in chapters 2 and 3 and 4, we come to realize that was not really so much an appropriate designation. And that's going to be the thrust of our study the rest of the lesson tonight. Why do you suppose Mara was the name she chose then, but perhaps as the book goes onward, it was not the best description? Well, would you consider three reasons? Three observations about this woman. By the way, although, of course, we'll be referring to a woman, even as men, we can learn some pretty amazing lessons from her. Let's look at the first one. Did you note this? When she traveled to Moab with her husband and with her sons, as the book opens, you and I know a great deal from the Old Testament about the country called Moab. We understand the kind of people that was there, and we understand the thrust of their false religion. And remember, she was there ten years. Might you and I be impressed that during ten years of time in Moab, she did not become an idolater. In fact, did you know what Ruth said about her? Now, Ruth had known Naomi for some time less than 10 years. We don't know how much less, but some time less. And yet it was Naomi that Ruth described like this, I'm going to serve your God. And all that while, Naomi had never become a worshiper of Moabite gods. She had never become committed to service of Moabite gods. She had remained faithful to the God of heaven. She knew Yahweh, and it was to Him that she would direct her allegiance. Again, may I say, that's worthy of imitation. That's worthy of being impressed. And not only that, remember her sons and husband died at some point. She was in a distant land, a foreign land, surrounded by foreigners. How easy would it have been for the purpose of attempting to acquire food to acquire favor, to do business in the marketplaces, to develop the habits of doing what they did. And yet she never did. That's impressive, isn't it? Sometimes you and I find ourselves in strange lands. Oh, it might not be in foreign places, but we may be surrounded by people who don't love the Lord, by people who quite frankly have chosen a different pathway through life May we, like Naomi, like Mara, never allow them to influence us to become what God would not have us to be. We've got to be true and faithful. We've got to be committed to Him. Did He not say in Matthew 6, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Needless to say, when Ruth made that statement, and could I again direct you to verses 16 and 17? Thy God shall be my God. It seems evident that Ruth could see something different in the person and in the life of Naomi. Ruth had grown up in Moabite land. She knew about Moabite gods, no doubt. She knew about worshiping them and serving them and what's involved in directing service to them. 
And this woman, Naomi's different. She doesn't serve them. I think you and I can be impressed. That commitment in the life of Naomi influenced Ruth ultimately to the point that she wanted to be with her. Let's close that slide and thus note that first statement. But what else about Mara is worthy of consideration? There was an exemplification in her life to the point where, as we've already noted, it had impressed Ruth and apparently some others in a very dramatic way. There is really something to behold in the behavior, in the conduct of a person dedicated to God. You and I know rather well the world doesn't appreciate it. In fact, the world will often detest it. The world will hate it, just like they hated Christ. Didn't Jesus at one point in John 16 say, The world, thinking that they'll do me service, will put you to death. He told that to the apostles. You and I know full well then that as we become Christians, and we do it voluntarily, we have signed up for service that the world is not going to appreciate. But we're Christians, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch, Acts eleven twenty six. Peter said it like this in 1 Peter 4, 16. He pointed out that the name that you and I wear, the name Christian, he rather abruptly and rather strongly said that when individuals thus call you by that name, that name that they will so often vilify, and that name that will bring very little interest to them. He said, If any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Peter pointed out then to those of that day, Suffer as a Christian? Notice, not as an evildoer, not as a person ungodly, but as a Christian. It would seem to me that as we give thought to Mara, here was a woman who in a foreign land in such difficult circumstances in that faithfulness lived a life of dedication and a life in which she displayed to others who witnessed it service to the true God of heaven. In principle, you and I are called on to do exactly the same thing. In 2 Timothy 1 verse 5, there was an unfeigned faith that dwelt first in Lois, and also in Eunice. Interestingly, again, there it's women who are under discussion. It's not men. Timothy's dad apparently didn't assist him or encourage him in the way of the Lord at all. But his mother did, and his grandmother did. But the faith that they exemplified was said to be unfeigned. It was a faith that was real and genuine, and it was without hypocrisy. You may notice lesson number three. And maybe this is the one that first comes to mind, actually. Naomi said, Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Lord hath dealt very bitterly with me. And yet, interestingly, you find that even though she felt as if she had been on the receiving end of much bitterness, isn't it amazing that throughout the book you do not read about a woman who approached life bitterly? You don't. She made the best of what circumstances were facing her. First of all, I'm going to go back to Bethlehem. I no longer am able to make things here in Moab. 
and she underwent that journey back homeward. But even when she got back, did you notice the advice she gave to Ruth? Have you ever known someone who is so down on life? They always are negative. Everything they say is more insulting than anything else. They're down on everything, including themselves sometimes. You don't find that at all with Naomi. Where did you glean today in the field of Boaz? Let me tell you about him. He's a near kinsman. And here's what I want you to do. You let him know that it's your desire and our desire for him to play the role of the near kinsman. And here's how you do it. Did you notice chapter 4? After Ruth and Boaz were married, you'll notice that the Lord blessed Ruth with conception and she brought a man-child into the world. And did you notice who the nurse for the baby was? Who took care of this child? May I direct your attention again to verses 14 and 15 of Ruth chapter 4. And the women said unto Naomi, These may well be the very ones that she said, Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Look at how her reaction is different. Blessed be the Lord which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel, and he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life. Even the other women said, This little baby may well be the restorer of your life, and not only that, a nourisher of your old age. For thy daughter-in-law, which loveth thee, which is better to thee than seven sons, hath borne him. And verse 16 says this, Naomi took that child and laid it in her bosom and became nurse to it. This older woman had given the advice that was needful. She knew what the law of Moses was, so she told Ruth. Ruth was not a Jewess. She told Ruth what needed to be done in order to play the role of the reception for the near kinsman. And Ruth did it. And not only that, when Ruth thus delivered the baby boy, Ruth took care of, rather Naomi nourished it. She nursed it. That is to say, she thus day by day took care of that little boy. Now you and I know what that little boy was going to grow up to become. The boy's name was Obed. He grew up and became a man, and he married, and he and his wife had a little boy. And that little boy's name was Jesse. And then that little boy grew up, and he married, and he had a lot of boys as sons. And the youngest of all of them was a boy named David. Ruth, you see, was the great-grandmother of David. She was the great-grandmother of King David. And don't you know that that which she instilled in Obed ultimately in part manifested itself in the life of Jesse. And in 1 Samuel 16, he is said to be there a person who respected the things of God. We'd have to believe his dad helped teach him that. And then he, of course, had a boy, and the youngest again was named David. And David was said to be a man after God's own heart. Did Naomi have a role to play in the stream of time that would be the man named David? Did she have a part to play in it? Without a doubt, she did. May I suggest to you as we close that slide, what an interesting reflection on Mara. 
It would seem that though she felt a degree of bitterness at the time she returned from Moab, by the time we reached chapter 4, she saw the blessing of God. She saw His handiwork in being with her and her family. And now, with the marriage of Ruth to Boaz, you and I might note one final thing. As you look at the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, you notice a lot of generations listed, 42 of them to be exact. And in that list, there are four women, only four. And one of them is a woman named Ruth. We have the special and interesting observation that a Moabite woman found herself in the ancestry of the greatest one to ever live, Jesus the Christ. Let's close our lesson then tonight and do so with one final thought, as you'll notice on that slide. Naomi was a person who seemingly enjoyed joy by the time we reached chapters 3 and 4. Though she had felt bitterness at once, that seemingly was washed away with the joy of God's provision, with the joy of His goodness toward her. You and I should appreciate also the joy that can be ours as Christians. Those who walk not by that destructive way of the world, but those who walk in the beautiful light of the countenance of God's goodness. Psalm 32, verse number 11 as well as Psalm 16, verse 11. Those perhaps are amplified as we come to the New Testament passages, not the least of which Romans 14, 17 and Romans 15, 13, where there, as those who are Christians, we too each day walk in the joyful existence of communion with Jesus Christ our Lord. Call me not my Naomi, but call me Mara, she said. I think we have reason to notice, though, that though she felt that way in chapter 1, what a blessing it was by the time we reached chapter 4. Maybe you and I have been in circumstances in life when perhaps things look bleak and dark and disappointing, but as time passes, prayer and faithfulness to God will often bring about a very different viewpoint. I hope we've learned a great deal about Mara. How encouraging is the little book of Ruth. It could be that in this grouping tonight, there's someone that would wish to be rededicated to the cause of Christ. Maybe sin has come to be a part of the life you now live. But perhaps upon clearer thought, you know it's not healthy, and you know it's not what the Lord wants for you, and you know there's a better life for you. You, like Naomi, though you may feel Mara at the moment, why not come back to the first love of Christ Jesus and to know one more time the sweetness of His provision? If we could be of assistance in any of these ways, may we each think about Mara, even in the dark times of life, and look for better days ahead, just like she did. If we could help anybody tonight, we'd like to do that. Why don't you let us know the way we can while together we stand and while we sing.